Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on what is a scorching spring morning here in the capital is Gary Baker. Gary is the Group Managing Director at CD UK Limited, a leading supplier of surface materials, including Corian and complementary products to deliver design-led solutions. Uh, Gary, very warm welcome to yourself this morning, and thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. Good morning, and thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Gary. Certainly is a lovely day forward as well. Spring, it seems, has finally sprung here in the uh, the UK this year. Um, but we should, I suppose, begin by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that even though we're st- slowly moving out of social restrictions, we're still somewhat in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic, and we have been for the best part of the last 14 months. So thinking about that, to what extent would you say all of this has affected you and affected your business? Um, well, I think it's like the majority of businesses, we, we were totally uh, totally wiped out in a lot of ways when, it, when the pandemic hit us. So um, we went from uh, a thriving business uh, uh, to doing next to nothing overnight. Um, and uh, it, it was very hard to work out what, what was going to happen, whether our customers were going to be buying from us, whether they were still going to be open and surviving uh, back back when it all started. And we, we were very lucky in a lot of ways in that we uh, have a material uh, in Korean that we distribute that uh, was required for the Nightingale hospitals as they were going up. And, and we, we helped. Um, we helped our, our customers manufacture and, and did a did a bit of um, did a bit of supply work on on that side of things, which which just kept us busy and going um, at, at the beginning, feeling that we were we were doing our bit really, um, and that that allowed us a bit of space to um, to to work out what was happening in the world, what was happening to our business. Uh, and start planning for both getting through the pandemic and then coming out the other side. And just looking back on sort of the last 14 months as a whole, it's taken an unprecedented amount of pivoting and adapting from the industry world to try and get through this. But from that experience of doing that, would you say that you've learned something in your leadership position from having to guide the business through this past 14 months? Um. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I think we've all got, learned a lot about ourselves, and uh, I think we what well, we should have done really. Um, and um, I think we we went from being a very traditional business uh, where people were in the office or in our warehouse um, out on out on the um, out on on the road uh, visiting customers to, to not being able to do much of that at all. We kept our warehouse open throughout, so that was fantastic to be able to do that. Um, and then the rest of the business went overnight to being a, a remote business. 
Um, and so I think what we learned was that we could adapt and we could find ways to um, to keep the business going and to uh, to become a more modern company, I guess, um, over, overnight, literally. Um, and that was that was a very positive testament to the people who worked for us who, who got on with that. And, and within the space of a week, we transformed from the, that old, slightly old-fashioned business probably to, to one that was uh, working in a much more modern way. And then uh, I, I think uh, as the leadership team throughout, the, the important thing was to try and communicate that people feel um, supported and part of uh, the work community, even if they weren't seeing their colleagues all the time and, and understanding what was going on, because quite rightly, people were worried about not only their families and, and their own health and what was going on in their personal lives, uh, but also whether they were going to have a job coming out of it. And we, uh, we, we developed um, into a much more values-driven business probably a year out from the pandemic. And it became very helpful to use those values to guide our decision-making through the, uh, through the difficult time of the pandemic. Um, uh, and it made it far quicker to be able to come to a conclusion about how to approach given certain situations because the decision on what values were important to us has already been made. Um, probably, without a doubt, the most difficult time was uh, when we we planned for sort of two years, the, the next two years as we were in the pandemic and, and how that might look. And we, we, we lost probably a third of our business. Uh, we didn't see that growing back out uh, quickly at all. Therefore, we felt we had to size um, the business to um, to be relevant for that reduced turnover. Uh, and that meant um, making uh, redundancies. Um, and we went, we've gone down from, it was over 80 people to uh, to around 50 now. So you can see the scale of, of the redundancies we had to make. And we went really early on that. And that surprised a lot of people, um, I think, at the time. But we felt it was uh, right to um, to support them through the redundancy, uh, offer them the opportunity to be out there in the workplace as, as quickly as possible, finding alternative um, employment rather than leaving it and leaving it and then them hitting what looked like a very bad unemployment situation back then. In the, in the early summer last year, um, and and I, whilst it was absolutely grim having to let people go, the the response to how the the leadership team and the managers within our business handled that process, um, we we got we got some some quite frankly humbling feedback from the people who were made redundant, and and I think all of them have, have managed to find roles elsewhere. Which is exactly what you what you want to happen, and I think that um, uh, that proved to be correct because we we're not growing back out of it. You know, we're still significantly uh, down on revenues compared to where we were going into the pandemic, and we're much more able to uh, to get through. And it, it's important that the business as a whole uh, can get through. And 
you know, we supported uh, full salaries throughout for those people who, who were working for us, and that was a decision made early based on the value of doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that's been, been the major point for me is, firstly, you've got to keep communicating uh, as best you can to let people know what's going on because the uncertainty is a killer. Um, and secondly, use the values um, if you've got them and, and help those to drive how you go about business and, and uh, looking after people. Yes, yeah, certainly. It's a challenging issue, isn't it? Sort of balancing the human side of business, especially over such sensitive issues as redundancies and job losses. And given how mental health um, and well-being has been so amplified by the pandemic situation, and rightfully so, it seems like you've had to sort of work on that really, really carefully and that you've done that well to a large degree. Um, and also... I think, yeah. sorry, just to interrupt you there, actually, that's a really good point. We, uh, as that old traditional business, we, 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 we looked after health and safety um, in a very um, sort of matter-of-fact way, probably in the past. Um, we certainly didn't address anything like mental health issues. And... Um, so in a, in a slightly weird way, I think the pandemic's been very good for our business. It's highlighted the, the fact that, that people people need, you know, have, have complex and difficult lives uh, around around work and, and work can sometimes add to that. And certainly the pandemic has, has only added to that. And um, so now as a business, we we have mental health and well-being very much on the agenda. It's part of our approach to health and safety. We've got a mental health for day team. Um, it, it, it's absolutely part of the conversation. I think we're a much better business for taking that approach now. And given that you were working with some members of your sort of business team that were deployed remotely for a period of the pandemic as well, when you're sort of looking after their mental health and well-being, do you find that it's a bit more difficult to perhaps lead people and recognise certain signs from a distance, or do you feel that you adapted to that quite well? Uh, I think, yeah, I think sometimes the leaders are the ones who need the most help because they've got their own issues and they're looking after other people as well. Um, I think that's back to keeping very close to your people, talking to them, um, letting them know that there is help, um, out, you know, offering support in, in different ways. They might not want to talk to you, but there's other people that we we have access to and give access to. Um, I think it's about just yeah, talking as much as possible and, and letting people see that it's all right to feeling rubbish that day or not to be going right and be able to actually share their emotion um, with with people. That's probably, once again, something we certainly didn't do in the past. I'm not not sure we're fully there yet, but we're trying trying to work. And just thinking about the industry you're in that little bit more broadly, considering the government strategy for the economic recovery and getting out of COVID, the build back better agenda. I suppose it is an exciting time ahead for construction by and large, isn't it? As we move out of the uh, the pandemic, hopefully. I think there's, there's huge opportunity. Um, I think we, we, yeah, I think we, we've learned and, you know, if you use the word pivot right at the beginning, we, we've learned that we have to offer solutions. Uh, going forward, um, and 
uh, and work with the design community um, to give them understanding of, of the products we we uh, distribute and supply, uh, and importantly how how they can best use those in their designs going forward, and and um, make sure that they feel supported. So we we would always offer technical support both to the uh, design community and our customers who are working with the products that we sell, um, and it, it's it's very much. Um, going to open up, you know, who knows quite what that's going to look like. You know, suddenly there's going to be no offices ever built ever again because everyone's working from home and people have realised that they quite like seeing their colleagues and, and probably going to be some, some mixture, but the, the way the space looks will need to be redesigned to allow people to come in uh, probably a bit, a bit less frequently and, and then want to uh, be in teams when they are in, uh, so yeah, they'll, they'll, for that, that's just one one area where we might might benefit from. Um, I think on the residential side, it's clear people if people have kept jobs and are in jobs and haven't gone on holiday, then there's potentially money there to be spent as, as people want to um, do up their, their homes. Uh, all sorts of things. Retail pick up one way or another. And, uh, Little bit up to the state over over the pandemic in a lot of cases. So, yeah, I think generally construction um, will will be all right. And, and if you've been able to weather the storm and, and keep cash going and uh, keep keep dealing with customers in a way that they they appreciate what you've been doing with them for them during the pandemic, um, definitely. Um, Let's certainly hope so. And uh, thinking about yourself and CD UK, uh, just um, a bit more specifically now, Gary, um, over the next sort of 12 months, um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as hopefully we move out of lockdown? And where do you see your business being this time in a year? I, I think it's, it's about putting in proper foundations to, to grow. We, we, uh, this year hasn't, hasn't quite got going again yet. Um, so there's there's a lot of hope that once uh, restrictions start being lifted, um, suddenly it would get a lot busier. We, we tend to be at the back of the ordering and the supply chain because the building needs building, uh, the building, the fixing of fittings need going in, and then and we're, 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 we're the um, sort of designer at the end and, and, and the final fit. Um, so there tends to be a lag before we can uh, get going, and then there's real problems with supply chain generally. Lots of stories you can't get a bag of cement at the moment. Uh, kitchens from uh, the continent are taking ten, twelve weeks to come through. So uh, our products don't don't get needed for for longer. Um, so for us, this year is about. Uh, uh, getting through the year, putting in the foundation uh, to be able to, to take advantage of that during 2022. So we're, we're certainly hoping for some uh, some nice growth in 2022. But I think even one thing we have have learned is that it's it's not about just turning over. It you've got to be profitable in that. You've got to uh, you know, we'd rather stay to 
estate smaller um, and, and, uh, and make a profit that, that allows you to to be stronger as your own business in the future. So, yeah, we'll, we'll look to the growth, but uh, it's got to be a strong foundation. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting time, isn't it? And um, I certainly hope um, that you sort of see all the success in the world when it comes to those growth ambitions over the course of the next uh, few months and years. And I think that as we start to understand more about the kind of shape the industry by and large is taking over the next year, it would actually be great, Gary, to catch up and welcome you back onto the programme just to reassess the situation and see how things are getting on. Oh, I'd always love to do that. And, you know, uh, it, it, it is interesting times and uh, it, it, it'll be, uh, uh, be happy to come back and share, you know, how things are going and what developments we've seen uh, and, and that's relevant. Yeah, I think so too, Gary, for sure. And um, it's been wonderful welcoming you onto the programme with us today. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. And um, just because we're still not quite out of the woods yet, please do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on. Thank you for having me and the same to you. Take care. It was a real pleasure for me to welcome Gary Baker, Managing Director at CD UK Limited, onto the programme today. And joining us next on the show will be former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss, who during his playing days joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. He also spends a period of time following retirement as Director of Cricket for the ECB. That would be the England and Wales Cricket Board for those not in the know. Um, that will be coming up on the programme next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly (laughs) stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on 
helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive Mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we we 
we won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. 
Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players focus and interest um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time (laughs) so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew 
what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it 
Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events here, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive... If you're thinking about... Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised, and um, we want to take it up again year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC and you wearing re- wearing red. So it w- what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it 
I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.